Good morning. I promise you, it's weird, but I promise you that Josiah is inside of my brain. That was a message that he just spoke. That was truth he just spoke. I, can, I don't need to come up here. I, I can go. Goodness, Josiah, thank you for that. And I, and I promise you, like, he, he and I don't really collaborate too much on the message. We kind of talk about songs a little bit. I promise you, what he just said is like straight from the text that I'm about to read. And <laughs> he had no idea. God moves, right? No? Doesn't? Okay, cool. No, it doesn't. People talk about seasons of waiting. And I think, I, I, the first thing I think about when I think of like seasons of waiting is like waiting, waiting, you get engaged and you wait that season until, until the, the wedding. It's a long season for some, some shorter. Uh, but I think about that sometimes when I think of, of seasons of waiting. Uh, I think about Jason and Sarah who were over there. They just got married a couple, couple weeks ago. There was a season of waiting for them. It was, a, it was a cool season to kind of journey with them a little bit. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure they're glad we're there right now. Pretty sure that's, that's the goal, right, is, is, to, is to finish that waiting period and move forward into the next chapter. But I'm, my seasons of waiting are way more petty than, than marriage seasons of waiting or different things like that. My seasons of waiting is like when I, when I leave this parking lot on like a Thursday and I'm on the 51 headed home after the end of the day in Chandler. That's my season of waiting, like 57 minutes or so. That's my season of waiting. I can't stand it. It's too much. Can't handle it. That's my season right there. I, 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 again, probably pretty petty, right? Most of you guys probably drive more than that. I know Glenn, <laughs> Glenn drives a long ways to, to work. I, there's, there's people who drive a long ways. It, that's just my, my little petty season of waiting that I have every day. Thursdays are, wor- are the worst, amen? They're the worst. Like, I used to think it was Friday. It used to be Friday. Thursdays, for some reason, have replaced Fridays as the worst traffic days on the earth. For some of us guys, it's that waiting season of, of uh, waiting period of staying in line at Starbucks, right? So, so I got to share something with you guys. Uh, last time I preached, I talked about New York. I'm going to talk about L.A. We're going coast to coast. I was just in L.A. last weekend, and I was there in kind of what you would consider Times Square of L.A., where there's like the Staples Center and Microsoft Theater, and there's all these like, there's all these different businesses and restaurants right there smack dab in the middle. If you've been there, you probably know what I'm talking about. But there's a Starbucks in the middle of all that. And that Starbucks line, insane, insane line to wait in. Okay, so it's just out, it's out the door, all the way out. And um, you walk by and you're like, and I was at a, it was, it was like a Christian leadership conference, Christian Pat. So you know those pastors need their coffee, right? They're so basic, right? Those pastors, they, 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 they're in line just waiting for their Starbucks, right? And so there's this long line. I actually have a picture, I think. Do I have a picture, Allie? Yeah. Okay, so there's a picture. I don't know if it's hard to see or not, but that's a picture of all the drinks that are ready. That's, you know how you go up to that little, and you get, those are all ready. There's 33 drinks. I counted them. People, people are just waiting for, you know, there's a mob of people. I had to go like this with my phone, like I was taking a picture of a celebrity or something. That, that was 33, people just waiting for their coffee. It's a season of waiting. Again, like I said, it's pretty petty. Listen, if there's any husbands in the room, basically you spend four total years of your life just waiting. Am I right? Just waiting for your wife to get ready. Guys, once she's ready... Once she's ready, it's all worth it, right? Because she looks so fly, but, she, but, but it takes a while. It takes a while to get there. 
right? It does. And then, and then what you do, then, then you have daughters. And you're basically in a perpetual state of waiting until you die. Waiting for church to end. Some of y'all are already bored. We just started. Got bad news for you. I got 17 pages right here. Bad news. If you're bored already, hey, I don't believe church should ever be boring. Amen? I don't believe it. I don't believe this life is boring. I don't believe we should have this, this like, oh, I guess I got to go to church. I don't know about you, but this is, this is my family. And I like hanging out with my family. Speaking of family, I want to say happy Veterans Day to everybody here, but especially my dad's actually here today. So happy Veterans Day to you, Dad. Thank you for serving. It's awesome. Um, but waiting. Most of you guys also find that waiting is harder when you're waiting for something good, right? Waiting is always harder when you're waiting for something good. When you're waiting for something bad, you know, to happen, it's kind of like this anticipation. Like, but, but when you're waiting for something good, it's, it's like, oh, why can't, I, why can't I just get there? You know, waiting to, you know, my kids, dri- driving my kids to Disneyland, or, or, you know, my kid to Disneyland a couple years ago, or I don't remember how long ago that was, last year. It was like, oh, can we just get there? You know, can we just get there? And because you're waiting for something good. A wedding, for example, waiting for something good. We have these chapters here in Acts, and we're in the middle of our Acts series. Actually, we're, we're never going to leave Acts, guys. I'm sorry to break it to you. We're just, just going to hang out for a while in Acts, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good book, so we're, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit. But Acts 24 um, is what we're going we're gonna to key in on here. But, but, yeah, look at those Bibles. I can hear them flipping. I can hear your phones, too. We have all these chapters here in Acts, kind of in the middle of Acts, like Acts 23, 24, 25. And we have these, these stories, and basically what's going on here is... Paul, the Apostle Paul, is bouncing from one city to the next, from one trial to the next, from one prison to the next. And it may seem kind of counterintuitive, right? It may seem kind of, kind of crazy that we are, that, that, that this is a part of the book of Acts. It's just like, it's almost repetitive. We're kind of getting a little bit, you know, different, different scenario, same old story, different setting, same story. And it's kind of repetitive. And, and so we have to ask, ask the, to me, I ask the question when I read these chapters, I ask the question, you know, why is this book important for us to look at? Why, is these, why are these chapters even here in the text? What, what's going on here? What is in this for us? And there's got to be something, right? There's got to be something. And I'm reading, I'm like, okay, it kind of seems kind of repetitive. You know, he's getting arrested here, getting arrested there, trial here, trial there. But I think that we have something to learn from Acts chapter 24 is where we're going to land. If you look at Acts chapter 24, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because that would take a while, but I'm going to kind of bounce around, so track with me a little bit. Verses 1 through 9 says were kind of the charges brought against Paul, all right? And then verses 10 through 21 was Paul's defense that he gave, and he was able to speak for himself. And verses 22 and 23 is the um, Felix who is overseeing the trial, Felix is kind of having some indecision happening in in verses 22 and 23. And then verse 24 through 27, 
Felix dialogues with Paul, and then that's kind of where we end up. We're going we're gonna to jump to Acts chapter 24, verse 5, if you can, turn with me. And it should be on the screen for you. But we have this man to be a, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, okay? These is the people that are bringing, these Jews are bringing the charges against Paul. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. First of all, exaggeration, right? All over the world? No, he's not stirring up trials in South America or riots. He's not. It's not all over the world. He's, he is the ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we seized him. By examining him yourself, he thought they're talking to Felix, you will be able to find and learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I could just see it. You guys can see it. Somebody speaks forth, and the rest of the crew, yeah, 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 what he said. Yeah, he's wrong, yeah. Yeah, what he said, I'm going to follow after what he said. And here's the thing I think we come to realize, sadly, I've come to realize this, is that you can state something untrue, and if it has the backing of the mob, it doesn't matter that it's untrue. We have something to learn about that, guys. It is now popular opinion. May we as Christians be shrewd when we decide to throw our weight behind popular opinion without facts. The mob. Yeah. Rah, rah. All of a sudden, it's kind of like what Kurt talks about when he talks about the loudest voice wins. It's like if you can say it loud enough, it doesn't matter if it's true. Right? Wrong. That's wrong. The Jews didn't even want Paul guilty of a minor offense. This is crazy, guys. If you read the text, and I hope you do, I hope you read it up on your own too. Read it in its entirety. The, Paul, the, the Jews didn't even really want to convict Paul of a minor offense. They, they didn't want him to serve probation and pick up trash along the freeway or do any community service. They, want, they didn't even want him in prison. They wanted him dead. They had a plot to assassinate Paul. That's what they wanted. They didn't want him in prison. They didn't want him, they, they didn't want him you know, just to you know, slap on the wrist or anything like that. And so they started exaggerating these points about Paul. And then what they ended up doing is they ended up saying, okay, we're going to figure out a way to assassinate him. And you can see in Acts chapter 22, 23, 25, they wanted him dead. Skip on down to verse 13, if you will. And this is Paul defending himself. This is Paul speaking. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. He's talking to Felix. However, I love this. Gosh, Paul's so humble. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have found the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there may be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. The most serious charge against Paul in this is that he opposed Judaism. 
This wasn't news to Paul. Listen, in Acts chapter 18, which we've already looked at, we see the same charge brought against him in Corinth. And that charge was dismissed easily. And Paul knows this. And as you see in the text here, he finds common ground. I highlighted common ground with his accusers, which is always a good move in times of conflict. Finding solid, common ground with his accusers, with your enemies. Can we find some common ground, then have dialogue about it? Can we find some common ground with with the people that we disagree with and then have healthy dialogue about it? Because none of us want to find that common ground, do we? We just want to say, oh, you're wrong. You're wrong. Everything about what you're saying is wrong. I'm right. We don't want to find that common ground. And I think that's so important. I love that Paul does this here. He finds the common ground to the people that want to kill him. He essentially shuts them down here while testifying, if you read on in the text. The Jews didn't, want, didn't even really want Paul to stand trial before Felix. What they did is they wanted to get him handed back over to them so they can carry out their assassination plot, like I said. But Felix wasn't about to merely hand them back over. And here's the reason why. Let's read. Skip down to verse 22. It's on the screen. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias comes, the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So he's incarcerated, but he says some freedom. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. This is really interesting. So he puts him in he puts him in chains, incarcerates him, gives him a little bit of freedom, and then he comes and visits him with his wife. His wife, who they say was a Jew, perhaps this is why Felix was familiar with the way, as it says, familiar with Christianity because of his wife having that background. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe so he, could, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. All right, two years had passed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant favor with the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So we understand now that he wasn't going to just release Paul back to the Jews. Reason was because Paul had Roman citizenship. So instead, he was going to like, okay, I'll take Paul, I'll appease the Jews by incarcerating him but he's giving him some freedom here and he's coming to visit him quite often it sounds like in these two years he wanted to grant favor so he left him in prison even though he kind of knew Felix was familiar 
He knew that Paul was not guilty, and he could send him on his way as a free man. He had the power to do that. But this was not the case. Felix was a politician. He saw this man as an opportunity to use this situation for his own advantage. As we read in verse 26, perhaps this was a way to earn a little extra money from Paul as a bribe. So he's using, again, financial gain. Felix is kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of a, not a good dude, okay? Felix was not a good dude. And matter of fact, uh, there's a lot of texts that talk about Felix as being someone who's very, very violent, who is extremely um, hateful, and did not, did not lord over his, his, uh, his kingdom well. He wasn't a king, but over his magistrates well. He was very, he's incredibly harsh to, with people. And so here he is. We can see kind of his character come out. I wonder if I can keep Paul, if, Paul, if I can get some money out of him. I wonder if I could use it for my own political advantage or my own personal gain. But more than that, he's a politician, so he wants people to like him. Right? He might gain political favor from the Jews if he made the decision to keep him imprisoned rather than setting him free. So he might gain some, so, so he's not, if he just sets him free and says, on your merry way, he's not going to get the votes that he needs. He's not going to get the political uh, love that he so desires from the Jews. So he's in this situation. This is conundrum. He wants to please the Jews, but he also knows Paul has citizenship rights as a Roman. He couldn't infringe on those rights, but he could at least delay the decision in order to pacify the Jews. He knew that by putting this off, put, he can buy himself some time. Putting it off on the back burner for two years until he's out of there can buy himself some time. Now, I wonder if anybody's ever done this. Anybody with kids do this? No? Nobody with kids does this? I do this. Your kid brings up something truthful and you kind of put it off and hope they forget about it? Come on. My kid never forgets. And perhaps it's something silly, like, Dad, can I have a sucker? Maybe later, baby girl, you know, four days later. Dad, what about this sucker? Right? What about, it never forgets. It's crazy. I mean, goodness. Memorize some scripture or something with that brain. But here's the thing. I kind of love that she never does. Me and Cameron, we played this game in the kitchen. I'm going to call it laundry ball. It's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to, to, to describe, so I'm going to have her come on up and show, show you guys what this game is. It's all about here. Come on up. This is Cameron, everybody. Okay, so it's a laundry basket. I, this is the first time I ever call it laundry ball, huh? Usually it's like, what is this normally, like basketball with a laundry basket? She doesn't know. But she, what she does is she stands over here with the ball, and there's a basket, and I'm like, you ain't getting this. You ain't, you ain't scoring. You're not scoring basketball. Or whatever the ball that is. I don't know. It's probably got it at Peter Piper Pizza. But this right here is her, is her, is her goal to try to get it in. So we just play. Come on. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, 
I don't let her, I don't let her score very easily, but she scored. You can, you can go ahead and sit down, baby. Thank you. Jump. There you go. So we play this game called laundry ball. It's super fun. It's, at, it's more fun when I have the ball because I, I don't like defense. I like offense. So it's more fun when I have the ball. And I was kind of nice to her. Normally, I just swat the ball away, but I didn't want anybody to get hurt. <laughs> but we played this game called laundry ball. She always wants to play this game. And I'm always like getting home from work, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's a 57-minute car ride. And I just want to sit down and just chill out. And she just wants to play. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Oh my God. Hold on, I got a bad knee. Like, I'm tired right now from that. I got a bad knee. You know, I need to finish Stranger Things. I, like, just got home. Don't really feel like it. What am I doing? I'm pulling a Felix. <laughs> I'm pulling a Felix. And eh, not right now, you know, maybe later. We'll, we'll think about it. Felix has two, tier, two years left on his term. He figures he's just going to incarcerate Paul until he doesn't have to deal with it anymore, right? It's the next dude's problem. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking it. I wonder if we do this with conflict. I wonder. Because we did a series here a while back. It's one of my favorite series that we've ever done. It's called Rolling Back the Rug. Who remembers that series? Yeah, Rolling Back the Rug. We did a series here. And what, what it is basically is because when conflict is within our control, we believe here at Renovation, we believe that there's, it's, it's helpful to confront that conflict. It's helpful to confront the conflict. Not just sweep it under the rug and just hope it goes away. That's what, kind of what that series is all about and all the different ways in which we do that. And you can learn actually practical ways on how to do that if you take uncommon training. You really can Hope you, hope you decide to do that at some point. When I do premarital counseling, which I've been doing actually a lot lately, uh, I tell them this up front. I tell them this. I said, the last thing you want to do is you want get, to get into a marriage, and then three years in, your spouse rolls back the rug on you. It's better just to rip the Band-Aid off now before the wedding. Before the date. Let's rip the band. I'm not saying break up. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, if there's some hurts, there's some scars, there's some things in our lives, there's some conflicts that we have not dealt with, it's better to just rip off the band-aid. It hurts at the time, yes, absolutely. But it's better to do that now, prior to three years down the road, and all of a sudden, you, whoa, I didn't know that existed. I think a lot of people do that, though. I think a lot of people end up getting married because it's all about the roses and the puppy dogs. And then down the road, they're like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea who this person was. We never got that intimate with them. We never showed each other our hurts and, our, and our, our, the things that, that, that are scars in our lives. So when we do counseling, we try to, expose those things because I think it's healthy to do it before you get down that road. Felix meets up with Paul through these two years. We see there's a genuine curiosity regarding the gospel. Otherwise, why would he? He's a busy man, right? But he's like, hey, Drusella? <laughs> it's a cool name, by the way. Y'all gonna write that one down. Jason, Sarah, we're gonna hear. Anyway, hey, Drusella. 
let's go take a visit. Or let's actually, I'm sorry, they have Paul come. Let's have Paul come and let's just chill and talk to him and see what he says to us. So it's a genuine curiosity here. One could see Paul was kind of taking it easy on Felix here. Well, no, he wasn't. You could see how he could have taken it easy on, uh, on Felix here, right? But what does it say in the text? You know, why would, why would Paul want to offend the guy that hold the keys to his future in place? Why would Paul want to say, oh, you know, like, uh, why, you, you may want to change everything about your life because you're a jerk. Why would Paul offend? The guy has his future in the balance. He controls it. If I'm, if I'm Paul, I'm going in there like, hey, let's teach on verses that won't create too much pushback. All right? Let's Jeremiah 29, 11, this piece. All right, uh, you know, plans to prosper you, Felix. Okay? Let's, that, that would be the easiest route to take right now. But what does he do? What does Paul do in his waiting, in his two years of doing nothing but being incarcerated and waiting and waiting and waiting to be released? What does he do? Perhaps he did teach Jeremiah. We don't know that. But we know for sure from the text that Paul did not sugarcoat or tone down the message. He taught on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. You think Felix needed to hear that? I think Paul just knew. I think Paul just kind of knew, yeah, this is what Felix is going to need to hear right here. Because I know Felix's reputation. I know how he is. He's going to need to hear this. So Paul just lays it on the line. Risk his life, perhaps. I mean, Felix probably could have just went, kill him, right? But Paul's obedient, even in the waiting. I wonder how often we're prepared for the waiting seasons. There's so, many, so much emphasis on going and doing and speaking at events and climbing our professional ladders and are we prepared to live out what we believe in the seasons of waiting with that same vigor as Paul? Risking perhaps his life, undoubtedly his life, in the season of waiting. I'm sure Paul wanted to, you know, get back out there and spread the gospel and move from city to city and town to town and do what he's been doing for, for years and contribute, if you will, to the mission of God. But God had ordained Paul to go to Rome and preach the gospel to kings. His plans for Paul would be achieved through the opposition of the Jews and through the good and the bad actions of the Romans. And in this case, he had two years to do just that with Felix. How many know God isn't interested in mere works, but rather the heart behind the works? He is far more interested in your wholeness than your efforts. Since I don't see any glows of phones on faces and notes apps open, I'm going to say that again. 
He's far more interested in your wholeness than your efforts. Many of us can imagine these two years as potentially a waste of time, right? Like this, come on, like I've got stuff to do. I've got things to do. This is a waiting period that I didn't sign up for. I don't want this. I got to go somewhere else and do something else. And through our own eyes, I mean, we can see that that would be a tendency. I mean, our human tendency is to say, oh, why is this, why are, why is this unnecessary delay happening? Right? Little story, quick story. Didn't write in my notes, so I don't know how quick it'll be. But here, listen. We did a trip called Ethos in 2012, something like that. 2012, 2013, we did, a, we did a trip, and we were driving up to Flagstaff, and we had a blowout in the rain on the trailer that we were taking. We had a bunch of kids, bunch of teenagers, adults, and we had a blowout we had, on the trailer. So we needed to find another trailer or another, um, I guess there was a, a lot of damage. I don't remember. I'm not, I'm not a car guy. I can't really fix much. But, but there was something wrong with the trailer, okay? And so we, we had this blowout. This trailer was on the side of the road. We ended up pulling into like a church parking lot over there in Flagstaff, and we're like trying to fix this thing, get it repaired, get, buy a new one. I don't know what. I think we actually ended up buying a new one. But that's an unnecessary delay. We had to get up to Zion National Park. And we're in flight. Oh, come on. Like it would be so easy, right? Especially as leaders. Oh, we had all these plans all in place. We were going to do it this way. But what happened was community, friendship, relationship building in the rain. And we couldn't have planned that. There's something about those moments. When your best laid plans go to waste. Why is this unnecessary delay happening? Especially considering Paul isn't even guilty of the charges brought against him. How frustrating could that be? He's not even guilty, and he's got to wait. Frustrating. On top of that, Felix, Felix is kind of using him. Trying to get as much out of him as possible in bribes, but he's also using him for political gain, too, as we heard as we read. Let me ask something. Have any of you guys ever felt used? Most all of us. Most all of us. It doesn't feel good. Matter of fact, it makes you feel small. It makes you feel less than. It makes you feel like you're not worthy. You're feeling used. But let me say something. Feeling used and feeling useful, two different things. Feeling used and feeling useful. See, I think what Paul did is Paul said, you know what, these circumstances, not what I planned. Could I feel used? Absolutely. Absolutely feel used. But what he did is he took the feelings of being used and he said, I'm going to be useful. I'm not going to feel used. I'm going to feel useful. And I believe that's what he did. I'm going to have Josiah come on up with Luz. Don't get too excited, y'all. I'm only on page five. We've got 12 more to go. 
Feeling used is about me. Feeling useful is about God and others. Feeling used is about, oh, poor me, inward focus. But how about when you take, when you take those feelings of being used and you flip the script, you say, I'm not going to feel used anymore. I'm going to feel useful. I'm going to take what's been given to me, take the, the bad and I'm gonna, I'm gonna change the narrative. I'm gonna move it. I'm gonna make it feel, I'm gonna make me, myself feel useful. Because I think God is in useful. Others are in useful. I think at times early in my ministry as a youth intern, <laughs> I would do some pretty petty tasks. You know, things that interns would do, right? Oh, you know, oh, I'll just have the intern do that. <laughs> Bailey's not here today, but she would laugh at that. I'm going to have the intern do that. Maybe an assistant, maybe you have an assistant if you're out here. Maybe you have an assistant that you ask to do petty things. First of all, stop. Second of all, you know what I mean. Here's the deal. One could easily surmise from the task that I was doing as a youth intern that I was perhaps feeling used because of the pettiness of it. It wasn't grand. It wasn't great. I didn't have a ton of people say, oh, Andy, wow, the way you cleaned that ball closet, it was gorgeous. Oh, it looked so pristine. It looked so great afterwards. You're just amazing at cleaning ball closets. I didn't have anyone telling me that. But I didn't feel that way. And why I didn't feel that way is a key point in this message. I wasn't feeling used because of whose work I was doing. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too petty. There's nothing too little that God asked us to do. Whose work I was doing is key. My work was important because of who my employer was. Perhaps your challenge is great, but your mission is greater. I understood and I understand now that some of the pettiness or the smallness of the work of the church, I understand now that it means more that it means so much more. Anywhere you work, it doesn't have to be the church. But some of the smallness that you feel like, man, this is nothing. I'm not even doing anything right now. I'm not even, I'm not really even helping at all. Yes, you are. Because of whose mission you're on and who your ultimate employer is. Whether you work at a church, whether you work at a post office, whether you work at a school, it doesn't matter because of who your real employer is. It was bigger than my comfort. It is bigger than my comfort. It's bigger than my convenience. I was at a conference last weekend and a speaker said that most of us Christians, we want to be a light in this world. 
but we want to be a chandelier hanging in the living room of Jesus' house. We want to be a chandelier in God's living room when what he really needs is a nightlight in the hallway because more people are tripping up in the hallway and they need that light there. That's what he needs. And many of us are so focused on the chandelier because we want to be the centerpiece. When there are things to be done in the dark that no one is going to ever give you credit for or give you encouragement with. But I'm telling you right now, I'm giving you encouragement because I know who your employer is. I know who your, what your mission is. Two years of waiting. Most of us won't even wait two hours. Oh, Andy, if your service goes over an hour and 15 minutes, by golly, go down to another church down the street. I want to be out of here at 11.15 sharp. It's 11.15 right now. Tell you what, better not go over. Better give me that good coffee too, not that stuff, that, not that Folger stuff. Right? Because it's not about our comfort. It's not about our convenience. We warm seats for less than two hours a week and we say we're serving God. No, you're not. You're consuming God. You see, we want the benefits of God without taking the steps of obedience to God. Like Josiah said, obedience leads to intimacy with God. Jesus said that. John 14, 23 says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make a home with them, make our home with them. The Greek word for home means a staying dwelling place. God is not someone that comes and checks up on us from time to time. Oh, how's it going? God moves in regardless of what our house looks like. Oh, i got to clean it up before, before it moves in. No, you don't. Matter of fact, it's better that you don't. I gotta, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta make sure I get myself right before I ever let God have all of me. You know, I give God Sundays. And that's cool. And I'll warm seats all day. He wants your messiness. He ain't gonna, you invited me, he ain't gonna leave it. He's gonna have to kick me out. I don't care what your house looks like. Serving God in the waiting looks like, here I am. <laughs> Josiah, you hit it on the head, man. In the waiting, says, here I am. I don't care, I don't care if I gotta take out the trash, I don't care if I got to fix sprinkler heads. I don't care if I got to read children's books. Here I am. I don't care. I'm going to help build your church, God. I'm going to be that nightlight. I'm going to be the best nightlight that I know I can know how to be. Because where I am weak, he is strong. He'll make up for the rest of it. What I can't do, he'll make it up. I'm not worried about my seasons of waiting because I have my mission and my mission has me. It hasn't changed. Regardless, oh, 
oh, you, you, you're sitting in a, in a prison cell somewhere? You're talking in a conversation with somebody who has the fate of, of your, uh, uh, basically your fate in their hands? Are you out traveling the world as a missionary? It doesn't matter. The mission is the same. The mission moves on. Small task, large task. I hope I'm being used. I hope I'm feeling used. My aim is to be used up, to be broken and poured out. I, I preach on Wednesday nights. I hope on Wednesday nights, and I feel this on Wednesdays a lot of times. Sometimes I don't, and that's when I got to check myself. But I promise you, on Wednesday nights, I'm driving home. Oh, I'm used up. I'm poured out. And that's a different kind of tired than just being like, oh, yeah, I, I ran a marathon. No, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a soul tired. But I hope I feel used after to be poured out and broken like the Eucharist. Oswald Chambers says that Christ followers have been called to follow Jesus' lead in pouring out our lives for the world. I realize I'm not speaking to a room full of pastors here, so I'm going to go ahead and say that again. Christ followers have been called to follow Jesus, follow his lead in pouring out our lives for the world. I truly believe, and I truly believe for all of you, that you're pouring out. It doesn't have to be a professional thing. It doesn't have to be a, oh, well, you know, you come to church and pray over someone. You can feel that way, yeah. But I mean every day. And the, and, and the sphere of influence that you've been given by God, pouring out. I'm not going to look back and see that I was too busy or too tired or stretched too thin to be a part of his plan for the church. My prayer for you is that you don't spend all your time on things that make you feel important because the only value you really have is to be used by him. The only value you really have is to be used by him. I don't know about that statement. That might be controversial for some of you guys to hear. But I believe that. And we spend all of our time on things that make me feel important. For my comfort, for my convenience. Let's stop pretending that ministry and church and the gospel are optional. Not many amens, that's all right. Let's move on. Let's resist the urge to pull a Felix and only reach out when it's convenient for us. If I could have you guys stand with me. We're about to close. We sing a song. Listen to a song and sing a song if you want. But let me tell you something. Throughout my life, throughout my life, a reality that I've discovered is that convenience yields complacency. Convenience yields complacency. I wonder how convenient it was for this book, this gospel, to be shared all over the world in places of darkness, in places where it's illegal. I wonder how convenient it was, Paul, 
I wonder how convenient it was, Jim Elliott. I wonder how convenient it was, Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa, Brother Paul. How convenient was the underground church of China? Waking up at four in the morning to have church in a cave in the forest? How convenient is it, Renovation Church? He's called you to a specific purpose. Nobody's exempt. And contrary to what the tyranny of the urgent culture tells us, that's good news. It's good news that no one's exempt. It's good news that he has a plan and a purpose for you. It's good news that he brings you small tasks. Because let me tell you, that purpose, that purpose is rooted in love. Intimacy with our God. First John chapter 3, 1 says this, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. Let me tell you something, church. I want to be a church, a person, a body, an employer, employee that changes the narrative. I want in my life to just be merely a mirror or a reflection of what God's doing in this world around us right now. And a lot of people have the tendency to say, oh, you know, the church is dying. I don't believe that. I don't believe the church is dying. I believe some of us are sleeping. But we're not dead. Let's pray to change that narrative. Because of his deep love for us and his desire to be intimate with us. Let's change the narrative, folks. Church, the altars are open to pray as we sing. I know time is late, but let's listen and sing together. And if we need to pray, to receive that love or we need to pray to follow in obedience there's a great time right now to do that let's sing together